Well, good morning. We're going to continue our Bible study on the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Romans, and we're looking at a passage in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And as I've told you before, this is a part of a single passage that begins in verse 18 of chapter 1 and goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 26. That's an entire chapter 2, and most of chapter 3 is one thought of Paul. It's a long, long, long thought, but there was a huge issue that had arisen in the first century. There were several that, that normally when we, when we read the Bible in 21st century America with a Western mind, we don't even think about it, and, and we read bits and pieces of, of chapters, and then we try to make it work in our lives, which is fine to a certain extent, but Paul was trying to address an issue that had come up, and the issue was this. The Jews were, were fiercely against Christianity in the first century. The majority of the persecution against the church did not come from Rome. It came from the Jews. When the, when the Christians were dispersed into pagan lands, um, and they were persecuted by the pagans and the Jews, but pagans started getting saved. Gentiles started getting saved. And, and there was a moment when it, when it flipped. In other words, in the early days of the church, all, all the believers were Jews. So much so that people in Rome thought that Christianity was simply a sect of Judaism. And they thought it would burn out on its own like other sects have. But it continued, but then it got, then Gentiles started getting saved. And now the overwhelming majority of all members of the Christian church are Gentiles, not Jews. Jews are a very tiny, tiny, tiny minority of believers in the world today, in the church. And, and evidently, and I, and I say that because to the best of my ability to understand Romans chapter 11, that's going to continue on until all of the people, all of the Gentiles that God chose to save are saved. There's a, there's a finite number of Gentiles who are going to be saved. I have no idea. He, didn't really, he sure didn't tell me about it, um, but there's a full number, the, the, the Romans says, Paul said. And, and that's going to continue to the full number of the completed amount of Gentiles are saved. And then God is going to turn once again to the Jews and a whole bunch of them are going to get saved. Evidently, that's the way it reads to me. Now, one of the problems I have with that passage is that all through the 2000 year history of the church, Jews have been saved. So I, I, it's not like they're waiting. They're not waiting. And there are organizations that, that are ministries like Jews for Jesus and different organizations that go into Jewish areas and preach the gospel. Um, and the reason they preach the gospel to the Jews is because the Jews are not already saved. They need to be saved, even though they're Jewish. Um, but Paul, the Jews were, were, while the majority of the church was Jews, was when uh, Paul wrote Romans, and a, 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 a controversy arose. There were two controversies. Number one, huge controversy, well, three, three that I'm aware of. Number one was uh, how do Jews fellowship with Gentiles? Now, we don't think anything about that today, 
But back then, the Jews were commanded not to have anything to do with Gentiles. They were commanded in the Old Testament scriptures by Moses. They, were, they weren't even supposed to look at them. To them, a Gentile is a spiritual dog. He's just a mangy, stray dog. And God doesn't deal with strangy, uh, uh, mangy, stray dogs. God deals with his people, which are the Jews. And they're, they're chosen, and they know it. You're not, and they know that too. And they're happy about that. And so the arrogance that's in Jews is amazing to me. They've been the most persecuted and enslaved people in the history of mankind. It's a miracle that there's a Jew left standing. And there is. So something's going on there you have to acknowledge. Now, but, but they were, so how, do, do we tell the Jew to disobey Moses? I mean, they're sacrificing animals. Why? Because Moses told them to. God told Moses to tell them to do that. They go to the temple. They have the Levitical priesthood. They have all these things that the Old Testament commands. It wasn't suggestions. It was commands. And so now the church is there, and this is throwing a monkey wrench in, in everybody's gears, and nobody knows what to do with this. And it was not a simple transformation to come from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It was very messy. It was very sloppy. It was very awkward. There was a lot of mistakes made on both sides, uh, but the transition gradually took hold and gradually became dominant until Christianity became the dominant religion in the world in 300 years from the resurrection, and it's been the dominant religion in the world ever since. So, but what do, what do we tell Jewish believers who, who have come to Jesus for salvation they have to be retaught of what the law was and why it's now fulfilled in Jesus. And the, the two big books that do that is Galatians and, and Hebrews, which is why when the, all the, you see these messianic cults rising up all over the place, there's one in Wiggins, there's one in Van Cleve, there's one in Hancock County, or there was, I don't know if it's still there. Um, they despise Hebrews and, and Galatians because that was, that's what does them the most damage. And, uh, and it was written to tell Jews how to act uh, pertaining to the law now that Jesus has lived and died and risen from the dead. It changed, and this change was, was, was traumatic to people. It wasn't easy. It wasn't simple. A bell didn't ring, and everybody that was in the Old Covenant now understood they were in the New Covenant. It wasn't a line drawn in the ground. Forty years after the resurrection, people Jews were still sacrificing animals. They didn't know how to how do you how do you how do you make this transition? So there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of new covenant stuff that, that even started before Jesus was born, and there's a lot of old covenant stuff that kept going after Jesus rose from the dead. So there was an overlap which is why we need 27 books in the New Testament, because they're written for specific reasons to teach specific things. So Romans is primarily about salvation. So that was, the, that was an issue. What do, how, what do we do with these Jews? Secondly, um, uh, the big divide, the big racial, ethnic divide between people were Jews and Gentiles, not blacks and whites, like it, like uh, like in some areas, not not here, but in some areas, 
People have a problem with white people. People have a problem with black people. People have a problem with all kinds of different people. Okay, that wasn't the issue back in the first century. The first century was between Jews and Gentiles. And they were at war with one another constantly. And then you had sects of Judaism that were not quite Jews and kind of half-breeds like the Samaritans. And they had a problem with everything. And so you had all these different groups all fighting against each other, trying to have dominance. And, and here's the church right in the middle of all of it. So you had the church where Jews were saved, but Samaritans were saved too, and Gentiles were saved. So to an Orthodox Jew, that looked like a melting pot. And in America, the melting pot concept is a good thing. But in first century Israel, a melting pot was, a, was, a, was a, an abomination. So you have to be pure. That was their whole function, to be pure. And, and if they had to kill you to be pure, they were willing to do that. So uh, all, all this kind of stuff going on. And so, but the second great theological conundrum, the problem that existed, is how in the world do you think God can forgive sinners and not himself become unrighteous? He shows mercy to patently guilty people rather than justice. And I give you the example of being in court where somebody you love has been hurt or killed, and you're not there to see mercy, are you? You're there to see justice. And yet Christianity is all about mercy, isn't it? And if it wasn't for mercy, where would any of us be? So this section in Romans is about that. And, and you'd never know that by the way that the first chapter ends and the second chapter starts and the verse divisions and the chapter divisions, but it is one thought from uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 26. So we're right in the middle of it, and we're looking at there, there was, a, there was a, a, according to Paul, there is a first exchange that is made, and I'm, I'm trying to rehash where we've already been, so I'm not going to go back over it all. But there is an exchange made um, with lost people who know God or know about God. They're raised around God. They're raised in our concept today. They're raised in church. They know about God. They've heard the, the hymns. They can memorize the Bible. But they don't, they're not saved. And, and those people are in the worst place of any group on earth. They're worse than drug addicts. They're worse than mass murderers, they're worse than pedophiles in the sense of sin because these people know about God and yet they don't love him. You have so many people that don't know God and that's why they don't love him. But these people know God and they don't love him. So these are the worst people on earth. They're in the most dangerous place on earth and they're in jeopardy of their soul. And, and I would suggest that it, they make up probably the majority of the members of the modern American church. Um, this is why you have such internal wars going on in churches all over here over issues like who's going to run the nursery and what color of the carpet they're going to have and somebody got my parking spot and somebody's sitting in my pew and stuff like that. Silly, childish issues that, that, that we spank children for talking about and yet Churches divide over these things. There's a church on Highway 603 right now that, that it's a beautiful church, 
It's sparkling. It's brand new. It's large. It's beautiful. Got lots of land, and it's all around a bunch of oak trees. It really looks nice. That church, I just happened to know the background behind that church. That church started with a group of people in a local church here in Gulfport got mad at the pastor because of who was going to run the nursery. And so they got up in anger and walked out. About a quarter of the population of this man's church got up and walked out over that issue. And that's where they started that church. Now, people who go to that church and hear the gospel and are saved and become members of that church probably will never know that. And yet, churches are begun all over here because of people getting mad at other Christians and walking off. And, and that's the wrong way to start a church. That's just the wrong way to start a church. That's not of God. Yet God uses it in order to save his people. And so there's people that are chosen by God for salvation that will never know the background of some of these churches. And they'll go and they'll hear the gospel and they'll get saved, which is great. It's wonderful. They're not a part of that initial whatever. But, but here there is an exchange. There is a purposeful uh, planned, thought-out exchange. Um, and so I, 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 on page 29 at the top, I would like to read that passage because it gives us a, a sense of where we need to go as we go on into the study. So if Sister Charlotte, if you would, on page 29, read Romans 1, 20 through 24, please. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What does that mean? What does verse 20 mean? We've been over this numbers of times. Because you can see, God, it tells us the two ways here. His eternal power and his divine nature That's right. has been clearly, clearly seen. So God did that for what reason at the end of that verse? So that we have no excuse. Nobody's got an excuse not to come to God. Right. Nobody. Nobody. Well, what about that poor man on the Pacific Island that's never heard the gospel? What do you say to somebody that asks that question? I got two answers. Says, they, says they're without excuse. So that's not an excuse. But if I got another answer. Sounds like you're burdened for him. So if you're burdened, why don't you sell all that you have and go preach the gospel to him? If you're so worried about him. See, most people bring up a theological argument like the woman at the well with Jesus. They, he, she brought up a theological argument because he was getting too close to her sin. He said, go call your husband. That was her problem. And she wants to debate about where believers are supposed to worship, in the mountain or in Jerusalem. It's not her problem. That's not a problem. So people use that as a diversionary tactic. You get too close to their heart, too close to their sin, you're, you're, you're hitting the real issue with them, and they don't like that, so they'll change the subject and start asking you questions about God. That yeah. they have. No, it doesn't matter how you answer it, they're not going to get saved because you answered their question. But yeah, Jody? Yeah, they ask you about where that baby going to go when it dies. Like, you got to ask God that. Right, right. He's, put you He's the one that killed the baby. Place, well, we going to go. He's the one that killed the baby. I know that sounds terrible to say that, but that's what happened, right? He didn't have to. He could have let it live, but he didn't. But they asked me where, where to go, heaven or hell. I said, 
God's putting you in hell or hell, and he's putting me in hell or heaven. I mean, you, you asked the wrong person. Well, yeah, and and now I per, I'll go out on a limb with that and say I don't believe they went to hell. I don't believe that. Now, that's me personally. I can't prove that, but I, I don't believe that. So, they are without excuse. Now, look at 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Okay, now that's the issue, isn't it? They knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now, so what does that tell you about people who, who are saved? We should honor God as God, and we should be grateful, thankful, right? Because they weren't. Give thanks in all things, for Amen this is the will of God for you. For you. Amen to that. And then what happened? They became what? That they became futile in their speculations. What does that mean? I know I've stressed this several weeks now. Futile in their speculations. What does that mean? Well, there's no answer for it. Well, they're without well, excuse. They've nothing they put forward. We have a tendency when we read this verse to just say, well, they're lost and, you know, they stayed lost and they're over here lost. Well, they didn't, they didn't stay stagnant. They kept talking about God. They knew God. They didn't love God. They weren't saved, but they knew, they knew about God. So they kept talking about God. And so what is speculations? What, is, what does that mean? What does that word mean? What's... Yeah, yeah. So they just made up all kind of stuff about God. And what did, what did that become later as time went on? Their speculations, what did it become? Became organized religion because people wrote it down. This is the 10 lost, lost books of the Gnostics. They're not lost. We know exactly where they are. Nobody, nobody lost them. They're wrong. They're not inspired. They're not of God. But those are, those are futile speculations about God. They're imagining things. Why books you, that are... Why do you worry about what doesn't exist? Right, right, right. Why are they so outraged about Jesus? I don't believe in the tooth fairy, and I don't write letters condemning the tooth fairy. I don't get mad at people who believe in the tooth fairy. Well, the atheist says there's no God that's been their whole life trying to prove it. Right, because he bothers them. Right. They're bothered by him, which means it's true. So, so you've got all these books, you know, I saw an angel or, or my little boy was transported into heaven when he had a coma and saw heaven and described it and other people played with an angel on the ground. The book wrote, a guy wrote a book about that and so other bodies, they, this Mormon wrote a book about walking through this dark tunnel and then there was a light at the end of the tunnel and he saw he was up, up, up above his body looking down on his body in the emergency room and bunch of Mormons wrote those books and Mormons aren't Christians and Mormons don't believe in justification by faith alone and Mormons believe that Jesus was Satan's brother and Mormons believe that you're going to be a God. So everybody gets bit out of shape at a Mormon because they say, well, Joseph Smith saw an angel. That's the least thing that's wrong with Mormonism. They don't believe in how lost people get saved. You don't need to be wrong about anything else. I mean, everything else is gravy, right? So, so all these books talking about and describing heaven and warehouses full of, full of arms and legs that people didn't get because they didn't have enough faith to believe that God would heal their arm or their leg. And it goes on and on. These are futile speculations. This is nonsense. This is myths. This is fairy tales. Got nothing to do with the Bible. You can't add to the Bible, right? 
whatever the Bible says about heaven is all God wanted us to know. So anybody that goes to heaven and, and gives additional information to us about heaven, you cannot and should not trust that individual. I don't care how sincere he may be. He's walking on dangerous grounds because he's adding to what the Bible teaches, right? Okay, so he said, well, golly, Brother Blair, this was real. How do you know it was real? Prove it was, you can't prove the boy went to heaven. I mean, I had a dream last night. You should have seen what I was doing. It was amazing that I even lived, right? So, so they became futile in their speculations. And so you've got all these speculations that's out there about what God will and will not do. Well, I think this. Well, I think that. Well, I think this. Now, what did the Roman church tell the Protestant reformers was going to happen because they kept emphasizing Scripture, 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 Scripture. What was the danger that Rome warned about that has come to pass? That's right. He said, you're going to splinter Christianity into a million different sects. That's exactly what's happened. Why? Is the giving of the Bible to the average person in a language he can understand a problem? Should we not have done that? We should have done that. But with that freedom, with that liberty, with that blessing comes a responsibility to interpret the Bible correctly. Not just put any stamp on it that you want to. So now you've got all kinds of, of groups. I think there's thousands and thousands and thousands of Christian denominations and sects all claiming to have the truth, all claiming that they're right, all claiming that everybody else is wrong. Where, and, and Rome, now they have groups too. They don't have got about two or three hundred. They don't have as many as we do. But back then, who, who interpreted the Bible? The Pope. One guy. Simple. What does this mean? It's what it means. And you it, it couldn't mean, make it mean anything else. You'd get killed if you tried to make it anything else. So they kept a tight lid on interpretation because the Pope is the vicar of Christ. He is the, the earthly, visible, tangible, human representative of Jesus Christ on the earth. He is the Lord in his capacity as Pope. And when he sits in the chair of St. Peter and he speaks about matters of faith or morals, what comes out of his mouth is infallible because it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Now, I came up in the Pentecostal church, and I was taught the same thing. It, wouldn't, it didn't have all that fancy language to it, and it didn't have all those fancy robes to it. But when a guy would get up and say, thus says the Lord, whatever he said was from the Holy Spirit, and it was right. didn't matter what it was, right? That's right. And so more attention was paid to that stuff than the Bible. Okay. That's the same thing that Rome believes. Protestants don't believe that. So here's a shocker for you on Sunday morning. Pentecostalism as, an, as a movement has much more in common with Rome than it does with Protestantism. Now they'll lay claim all day long they're Protestants, but you go line by line through what they believe and it's 
first cousin to Rome. It's the furthest their way is from Protestantism. That's just the truth. And when I figured that, found that out, I about fainted. Pentecostalism as a movement. You can call it charismatic. You can call it new new wave. New wave. You can call it the uh, new wave of apostolic movement. It's got all kind of different names. But the old original name in the in the nineteen oh six Azusa Street revival. These people believe that the gifts that came on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts is still for the church now. Um, and that's what started that movement. The Assemblies of God, the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, and a whole slew of non-denominational little, bit, little bitty churches dotting all over the landscape, especially in the South. Um, somebody told me one time, a non-denominational Pentecostal church is a magnet for kooks. Every weird guy in the world that's got the most off-the-wall beliefs and you've ever thought about goes to a, a, a little little off-the-wall little church. And so, and they came here in the beginning of, of this church. They came here, and I they, they got very uncomfortable with the fact that I was sticking to the Scriptures. And when they tried to do something, like fall on the floor or whatever, I said, where is that in the Bible? There's only five instances where people fell on the, fell down under the Spirit of God, and three of them were done by sinners Daniel and John are the only two people that experienced that, and that both of them did that when an angel was talking to them. So just because you hear a song with a good beat to it doesn't mean you're in the spirit when you're acting like a nut. And I stopped it. I was a terrible Pentecostal. And I said, we're not going to do that here. Well, I believed in the gifts, but I, and then I came to realize what the gifts were for, and then that ended that. And I am so thankful for for the Holy Spirit, so grateful. I do not quench the Spirit. I do not despise prophesyings. I do not uh, do any of that stuff that we're told not to do. And I believe that the gifts have ceased. So did the Apostle Paul. So I'm in a good company. So when they were became futile in their speculations, and what happened to their heart? It was darkened. Right. So this is a progressive thing. As we go through the rest of these verses in Romans 1, we'll see that the judgment of God becomes worse and worse and worse on them. And what happened when their heart was darkened in verse 22? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, fools in this sense is not the silly jester type of fool. It's the one who disbelieves God kind of fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, that kind of fool. And look at 23. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So back in the first century when this was written, people literally carved totem poles, uh, 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 images of their gods into tree trunks or into stone. They carved it into stone and they literally set that up in their house or in the city streets or wherever and they literally bowed down and prayed to that and worshipped it. They literally sacrificed their children to these gods. They literally offered food from their crop, from their garden to these gods. Um, 
They offered meat from their pasture, from the sheep or the cows they were raising. They cut, they, they slaughtered the animal and offered meat. So they had meat and vegetables and burned up children on the, on the base of these totem poles right in the middle of the street or in their house or wherever or in their temple that they had built. And it, it is it, the reason people do that is because of the way we were created. We were created to know God, to love God, and to enjoy God forever. It's in us to be worshipers. And if we're not going to worship the one true and living God, we're going to worship something else. But we are going to worship. Now, people don't call it worship, but they do call their heroes idols that they try to emulate and follow. And so you got a bunch of young men my age that tried to be Clint Eastwood because he was cool growing up in the 60s and the 70s, and so we all wanted to be like him. We wanted to be like Superman. We wanted to be like Johnny Unitas. We wanted to be like whatever. And those were our idols, and so we walked like, we learned how to walk like they walked. We learned how to talk like they talked. We learned how to dress like they dressed. We learned how to do what they did, make my day. And so everybody's saying that in school when I was growing up. And, and, and it's like, golly, man. And, and it became a way of life because what are we doing? We're worshiping. That's worship. We set our affections on other people like that. When they're not our husband, they're not our wife, they're not our children, they are our idols. And what happens when you start worshiping an idol? What happens? Sooner or later, what happens? another human being, what happens? They let you down. Why? Because they're human. So they don't do what you've imagined that they will always do. I, can't, I cannot tell you what happened to me when I saw a video. And back then they didn't have YouTube, so it was very rare that they had video on TV. Of They, they only had the official video of him playing uh, for the Baltimore Colts. But on the sidelines, when he was out of uniform and just walking on the side of the street... I'll never forget how my heart just dropped in me when I saw Johnny United smoking a cigarette. I couldn't believe my hero. I, golly, man. And then I heard him use bad language. And I'm going, wow. It just, it, and then what happens after you, your idol lets you down? You don't love them anymore. What, what do you do? Go to a different idol. You just, you'd go to a different idol because you despise that one. You despise them. So when men make their wife their idol, sooner or later they're, they're going to despise their wife. Same thing with a husband. So are your children. Your children are going to let you down. People let you down. They're not, they're not perfect. And so what we have today is not... Now, I have, I have been in a meeting of, of people where a guy was literally on his knees worshiping at the foot of a statue that was on top of a table. It's the first time I've ever... I haven't seen it since. He literally was bowing down and worshiping that idol. We usually don't see that in the United States. What do we see as idols? What's probably the number one idol in this country? Huh? Money, sports, sex, power. That's our idols. Success. This thing called success. How do you measure success? How much money is enough? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, and then if, you, if you, you can tell what's going on in a man's heart, 
you go to his office and he's got pictures all over his room of his children and nothing of his wife. That's, that's ungodly. I'm not telling you don't love your children, but love your wife more. You didn't make a covenant with your children. You made a covenant with your wife. You voluntarily entered into a covenant relationship with your wife. Children just came about because of that covenant. They're going to, I don't know whether you realize this or not, your children are going to get up and leave. So one day, right? Yeah, yeah. And some of them come back, don't they? Yeah, some of them come back. So, so we have money, possessions, earthly power, or people. So we, we went into all that. So on page 30, in the, in the bottom third, I told you there were five ways that, that man was created uniquely. Different from a cow, different from a bird, different from a lizard. Number one, the uniqueness of how man was created. Number two, the triune Godhead was present in man's creation. Number three, the uniqueness of man's being. Number four, God commanded man to subdue and dominate the earth. Number five, God holds man accountable. Now, if you notice, one of the things that I hope I'm doing in this church, um, I don't spend a lot of time with the specifics of how this doctrine works in your life. I, I, I do say things like, what does that look like in, in real life? So I want you to know. So I'll give a little bit of examples. But if you will listen to a lot of the sermons that's going on today, 85% is application and 15% or less is actually teaching biblical truth. That, that ratio needs to be reversed. We need 85% biblical truth and 15% application because the application is going to differ between people. How Brother Jody applies the truth of God's word in his situation is going to be a little bit different than the way Vern does, a little bit different than the way Brother Don was, a little bit different than the way Brother Chris does or Brother, Brother uh, Rich does. And so, so that you can't just, it's not one size fits all in the application area. But the truth is a, is a one thing. It, it, every verse means one specific thing. And the goal of preaching and teaching is to arrive at what that one verse means. What did the writer have in mind when he wrote it? God doesn't want my creativity. God's not interested in me being fancy. God wants me to tell the people what he said. So we went through... Uh, uh, all, all, most all of these, and, and we found out that God made man different than the triune uh, Godhead was present. And then, and then on page four, 34, we got into the uniqueness of man's being. And this is another thing I, that I try to stress in my sermons and in my teaching, more about who you are than what you do. I think it's infinitely more important that you and I discover who we are than it is what, we, what we're doing because what we're doing will naturally follow who we are. If you have been born again, if you have experienced the miracle of the new birth and your eyes are open, your ears are unstopped, you've got a soft heart that is able and willing to believe, you will follow after Jesus. You will bear godly fruit. Now, can that fruit improve? Of course. Can you understand things better? Of course. And that's why going to church is helpful as you hear the word constantly, constantly um, taught and preached and put forth. Then all of a sudden, some of the pieces that you were confused about come together and click. 
and 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 because you can't possibly talk about everything in a one in one setting. And so um, the the being of man. So in the beginning, before Adam sinned and Adam fell, Adam was able to sin and he was able not to sin. He could do either one. So the way people talk today about lost people is the way Adam really was before he fell. They're wrong about the way that lost people, the being of lost people is not that they can either sin or not sin. That is not the being of lost people. That is the being of the way Adam was before he fell, and that is the way it is with us after we're saved. So we, we, we resemble Adam before he fell after we've been born again and we've been given that new nature. The difference in us and Adam is before Adam sinned, he did not have a sinful nature. He did not have a fallen nature. He did not, he, he, his, his flesh was not already cursed by God. The reason some of you are wearing glasses today, the reason some of you are walking slower than you did 25 years ago, the reason it's harder to climb 80 flights of stairs than it used to be is because you're dying. Your flesh is going back to the ground. And it's a slow process that we call life, interestingly. So from the moment you're born to the moment you die, you're dying. My mother-in-law passed away recently. And before she died, her blood pressure would go way up. Her blood pressure would go way down in the same day without medication. She was talking to people that had been dead for years she was hallucinating. She was, we couldn't figure out what was going on. What's, what is this? And the doctor just finally said, her brain is dying. Her brain is dying. She's not, she's getting where she's more there than she is here. And it was a very slow process for her. And we, we had to beg God to not let it be agonizing for her because she didn't want to be like that. And, and so uh, I looked at the death certificates. We just got those in. The immediate, see, everybody dies for the same reason. Everybody dies for the same reason. Your heart quits beating. Why did your heart quit beating? That's the secondary. That's the, what caused. So what caused her heart to quit beating was pneumonia. Well, what caused the pneumonia? Acute, and there's another word starts with an M, and I can't think of it right now, encephalopathy, which is the brain was infected. And it was acute, meaning it's suddenly onset. And what caused that? Uh, radical renal failure. Her kidneys went out, which caused her brain to mess up, which caused pneumonia, which caused her to, heart, heart to quit beating. So this caused this, which caused that, which caused this. And all the medicine in the world can't fix that. It, it, and, and so, you know, 15 years ago in the newspaper, they just said he died of old age. He died of old age. That's what happened. Well, old age, 80, 83, 84, 70, 60. What's old age? We know people that's 95 that walks 10 miles every day. We know people that's working that's not in their 90s. We know people that's in their I do, people in their hundreds. 
We know other people that died in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s. So that's God's business. But, but life is, is, our bodies have been cursed. This ground has been cursed. The solar system has been cursed. Everything is dying. The earth is decaying. That's why it's the, the, um, the tectonic plates are shifting. The earth is decaying. Why? It's not made to be eternal. It's only meant to house man until all of those that God chose to save have been saved. And then Jesus comes back and there'll be a new heaven and a what? A new earth. And there'll be no more sea. So that's going to be interesting. So, so this, wor- this world is decaying. It's catching on fire. It's, it's, it's separating from each other. And so we're feeling the rumbles of that. And people that don't believe the Bible are saying, well, if we only got rid of the internal combustion engine, we'd be okay. Or, or if we only get rid of man, we'd be okay. Well, no, because God created the world in such a way that it takes man to govern and rule over it for it to be productive. Up there in the DeSoto National Forest, right on Highway 49, they, they burned all the underbrush under, on those trees. That's because they have a brain, and they, they, that's healthy. Now, when we get a forest fire, it won't burn the whole thing down. Out west, they've got to protect the snail darter, and so they don't burn the underbrush, and they have these 100 million acre forest fires over there because of lightning. It's, I guess they don't have a brain. I don't know what their problem is, but they'd rather protect a snail than protect people in their houses, and, and it's ridiculous. So, so God created us, though, in addition to our flesh, in addition to our intellect, in addition to our mind, it can create, it's very fertile, and thinks of expansion and creation and new inventions. And I was talking to Rhonda yesterday about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was a horrible human being, but he was a genius. He had a daughter out of wedlock named Lisa, and for decades he wouldn't even acknowledge that she was his daughter, even though he knew she was his daughter because he named his third computer the Lisa after her. And it, it, the court forced him to get a, a, a DNA test that proved his paternity. Then he fought that, and then I think he only gave him like $1,000 a month or something like that, and he, he was a billionaire. And I don't know what his problem was, but he, that, that makes him a horrible father in my book, and that makes him a terrible human being in my book. But he was a genius. And Steve Jobs was the first human being who died that, that the people of the world found out about it on an invention that he had made. He changed the world of communications. He was a genius, wasn't godly. And according to what I've read, right before he died, he saw something and he said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, right before he died. And don't know. I hope he repented. I have no way of knowing whether he did or he didn't. I don't get into that. But, but, but so the, the flesh is cursed and something's going to take you out. Old age, car wreck plane crash, train accident, you're going to fall off the ladder, you're going to, some freak accident, it's not freak and it's not an accident, it's the will of God, Uh, you're going to trip over your rake in your yard and the lawnmower is going to run over your head and cut your head off or something, I mean, it it doesn't matter what happens, 
You're going to die. And you're going to die slow or you're going to die fast. You're going to die easy. You're going to die hard. But you're going to die. And I'm not being Mormon. I'm not being fatalistic. The point is we're all going to die. There's only one generation of people who will not die. And that's the generation that is alive on the earth when Jesus comes back. They will never die. They will immediately be changed into a glorified body. And then, and then, and then they're off to the races. But we will immediately, when we die, we, our being, our who we really are is not our body. That will go immediately into the presence of the Lord and we'll be worshiping God for a whole long, big old bunch of years. There's people been there for thousands of years worshiping God. You think, well, that's the epitome. That's the climax. No, it's not. There's something, one more step. And at the resurrection, there is one specific appointed time for the resurrection, and those people that's been up there for 10,000 years will get a new body. I keep saying that. That's not what it says. It says a glorified body. I have no idea if it's the same body that's just changed or if it's something different. Uh, I used to believe that there'll be no male or female. I, I, no longer, I no longer believe that because I was assuming that when Jesus said they'll be as the angels, they'll be neither married nor given in marriage. Married or men given in marriage were women, but he wasn't talking about men and women. He's talking about marriage. And, and so we won't be married because why? marriage is only temporary because it's a earthly, physical, visible example of the mystery between Christ and his church. Once we're there, we don't need the, the uh, sign. We don't need the symbol. That's why I don't believe in all the Old Testament symbols are still valid today. They were symbols of a spiritual reality that's infinitely better than the symbol itself, right? And, and same thing with marriage. It will be done away with. But there may still be females and there may still be males. Now, what makes a female, I'm not talking about what Congress is debating about right now. I'm talking about reality. To Everything about a woman is unique to that of a man. And, and I, I'm not going to get into that because I'm just trying to put male and female together here. But they have a being. They can worship God. They can be equally saved. And then there's a divine order uh, on the earth as long as we're on in this flesh of male headship and female support, both in the church and in the home and supposedly in society as well. It used to be out in society as well. Now that's almost a distant memory but but so so i'm trying not to get into the flesh part so the the being of you your spirit your soul god gave you a soul that is different from your body so some people have said you're you you're, you you are a soul that's housed in a, you have a body but you are a soul okay now where are the seat of emotions is it in the soul or the body? See, I think both. Because it is not being unspiritual for us to love, which is an emotion, right? It's pr probably better than an emotion. Uh, what's his name? My homeboy. Jonathan Edwards separated emotion from affections. He separated loves from affections, too. Affections are the good things, like loving God and loving each other and forgiving our enemies hating sin that's a that's a type of an emotion right in order to love god in order to love righteousness we have to also hate sin 
That's a commandment too. So, so then the intellect, where is that? Is that the flesh or is that the soul? See, there, you get into things that are, and what about personality? Is that part of the soul or part of the body? I think both. So when the body dies and there's just the soul, do you have a personality? Well, I hope so. Hope we're not robots. So, you see, people don't normally think about this stuff, but this is important to understand. So that's the uniqueness. Cows don't have that. Dogs don't have I know people think all dogs go to heaven. That's possible. I'm only, I know it was symbolic of, of something else, but, you know, Jesus is coming back riding a white horse. So are there horses in heaven? I, don't, I think that's symbolic of something else. He has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. So we're going to look at Jesus' thigh? I don't, I, I just, that's all symbolic to me. But uh, So I don't believe there might be animals in heaven. I'm, I'm not sure. But I know that people are in heaven. And until the resurrection, it is the, the soul. So the uniqueness of man's being. We can know God. We can worship God. We can love God. We can enjoy God. And I get in trouble with dog lovers about this. Your dog is hardwired to love you. And they really, they, they really love, but they're hardwired to do so. So there are at least eight things about man's being that's different from other animals. Man's personality, man's spirituality, man's ability to love and enjoy God, man's self-determination or will, Man's commission to subdue and rule over the earth, man's immortality, man's behavior was always restricted, and God holds man accountable. So um, we went through some of those from page 35, and I want to go into number four on page 36 about self-determination of will. There's a, there's a huge issue. Any time, and I'm going to get into this in my sermon this morning, if the Lord is willing, um, no matter what, no matter where you start the conversation about the doctrines of grace, our predestination, our God's foreknowledge, our God's choosing you before the foundation of the world, that subject, sooner or later, the argument always gets to God's sovereignty versus man's free will. It will, it will get to there sooner or later, and sometimes it's real soon. But people are not really, it doesn't sink in on them until you read about 10 or 12 scriptures that talk about God's predestination or God's choosing us before the foundation of the world. So they start thinking, and then all of a sudden they say, wait a minute, what about, what about our will? Are you saying that men are robots and that God just makes us get saved and us kicking and screaming? No, I'm not saying that at all. I don't believe that. God won't make you get saved, but he'll make you willing. How does he do that? By changing your nature. Is that the same thing? I don't think so, but it's pretty close. So, um, let's try to put it this way. You know that certain things are dangerous for your children. And I don't care how you go about it. When you restrict your children's or your grandchildren's behavior, they just look at you as being mean. 
they think you don't want them to have any fun, right? So their job now is to sneak around and do it anyway where you don't find them, find out about it. That's their, that's their challenge because they're going to do it. They just don't, since you have said it's bad, they don't see it's bad. They see it's fun and you're just not thinking clearly and you just don't, you're killed joy. And so they're going to go do it anyway. So your goal as a parent is to try to explain as best as you can why that's not good, why that's dangerous, why it's not helpful to you. And sometimes they can understand and sometimes they still want to go do it. It looks, looks like fun. Well, I'm not going to break my legs just because I jump off the roof. Other people might break their legs, but if I jump off the roof, I won't break my legs. And, 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 and at that point, you know, you can, you can, you can say, well, you're not going to get up on the roof. Why? Because I said so. And, then, and you, you're tired of talking about it. All right. And that works to a certain extent. And then you go to work and come home and they're on the roof. And, and uh, I remember watching Mary Poppins when it was in the movie theater. That's how old I am. The first one. And I came home and I got my mama's umbrella. And I went to my friend's house out across the alley. His name was Grover. Uh, I said, hey, Grover, I can fly. And he said, really? I said, yeah. I said, this umbrella will hold my weight up and I can fly over your, all over your backyard. Really? I said, I just saw somebody do it. And I said, really? I said, yeah, I'm going to get on your roof and show you. He said, okay. And he got up there with me, only he didn't jump and I did. And I was so shocked when, when, when the ground came into contact with my feet very hard. I said, what happened? So I said, well, I just don't have a big enough umbrella. I didn't do it right, you know. So I kept getting up there and jumping off until I just tore my mother's umbrella to pieces. And, and, and so, you know, and then I got in trouble. But, but when we're, when, when Ad, before Adam sinned, he truly did possess the ability to sin or not to sin. He had choice. He had what we call free will. Now, he chose to sin. We don't know why. I know why I choose to sin, because I'm already fallen. But he didn't have a fallen nature until after he sinned. So there wasn't any internal lust for Satan to capitalize on. So we don't know why he sinned. The Bible doesn't tell us. It only tells us that he did. It, the Bible does not tell us why Satan rebelled in heaven. It just tells us that he did. It doesn't tell us why Esau uh, sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And he said, well, he was hungry. No, he got hungry that day after he ate that bowl of soup. So he had been hungry before and he didn't sell his birthright. He despised his birthright, and he was looking for a way to get rid of it. He, didn't, he wasn't happy being in the family. Adam wasn't happy being in the garden with God, and, and Satan wasn't happy being in heaven. Now, I don't understand that. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. It just tells us that he did. So we don't know. But after Adam fell, he now had internal lusts. He now had a fallen nature a sinful, rebellious nature. And it isn't, that doesn't mean that everybody born after Adam is as bad as they could be. 
That's not what it means. What it means is that everybody is sinful. It doesn't matter whether you steal gum out of your mama's purse or rob a bank, it's still stealing. It doesn't matter whether you actually physically attack a woman or you just lust for her in your heart. It's still adultery. Um, so in that lost condition, he could do nothing except sin. He lost the ability to not sin. And that is the state that every human being after Adam is born into. Everything they do is sin. Because the, the Bible says whatever is not a faith is sin. And what that means is whatever is not done in faith to the glory of God is sin. And lost people don't do anything to the glory of God. So people build hospitals to treat burned children for free. That's a wonderful, noble thing. But if it's done to glorify the Shriners rather than God, it's sin. It's not counted as righteousness for the people that built it. Danny Thomas built St. Jude's Hospital with his own money and then with donations to glorify, not God, to glorify St. Jude. And so you go on and on and on with these things and you really find out the motivation behind what, why people do these magnanimous, noble, wonderful, good things. And if they don't do it to the glory of God, it's sin. So people, no, no lost person does anything for the glory of God. So everything a lost person does is sin. Lost people do not love God. They cannot love God. And they cannot because they don't want to. So they don't have the ability to sin or not sin. That doesn't mean they're sinning every second of every day, but their natural state of being is lost, fallen, and sinful, rebellious. After you're born again, you're given the new nature. And so you revert back to the way Adam was before he fell. You can sin or not sin. When we're in heaven, we won't be able to sin. That will be taken away from us. Why? How, how will that be taken away from us? Our soul, our spirit goes to heaven by itself, and we will not be able to sin while we're there. Why? Very simple. Glorified body? Not yet. We're there before we get a glorified body. We don't have our fleshly body anymore. And all temptation is in the flesh. All temptation is in the flesh. If our spirit was roaming around by itself, we would never sin. That's the way it's going to be in heaven before, we, before the resurrection. Is we, will, we, will, we will not sin because our bodies aren't present. So all the flesh, all the, all the lust, all the, all the whatever you call it, the, it comes from the human heart, comes from the mind. And so it, it, it comes out of us because we want to. Well, the want to will be taken away and well, we won't be able to sin. And then when we have that glorified body, that body will be changed. So that tells you that now as a Christian on this earth in 2023, we're tempted in our flesh. We are not tempted because we have two natures. We don't have a fallen and a divine nature at the same time. It's not true. People teach this. It's wrong. Only Jesus had two natures, human and divine. We have one nature, and it's either born again or it's not. And if it's born again, it's brand new, and we can see, hear, and believe, and trust, and hope, and love, and enjoy God with that new nature. And so 
the, 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 the whole thing for us, it began with God, it began before he made anything, way over in eternity past when he made the one single decree to sit in his throne at the end of time and be surrounded by the billions and billions of people that were redeemed because of what he alone did for them by grace through faith. That's his goal. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why you're saved. Okay, so he made a decree before he did anything else for that to happen. And everything else that God did was to make that happen. Created the universe, created earth, created the seas, created the water, the dry land, the animals, the, the trees, the fruit, man, Satan to tempt man, man to fall, the law, Moses, Jesus, redemption, the church, everything that came after that decree was to make that decree, what he decreed happen. There's one decree of God. They're not decrees, plural. It's one decree. And so as far as salvation is concerned, and salvation is the epitome of all of that, right? He's not just going to sit in his throne. He's going to sit in his throne surrounded by all of us, praising him for the goodness of his grace and praising the glory of his grace because of what he alone did for us in rescuing us from damnation. Now, if that doesn't attract you, you might not be saved because that's, that's what the Bible says heaven's for. All right, now, so my point is we have to look at all of this as part of that. It's a seamless thing. It's not, oh, my gosh, Adam's sin. What am I going to do now? Well, let's try the law. Well, that didn't work. Let's try Jesus. That's not the way it worked. All this was planned. God allowed man to be tempted. God wanted Adam to be tempted. Now, he hates sin, so he allowed what he hates. God allowed what he hates. Why? Why would God allow what he hates? If he hates it, why doesn't he stop it? The world teaches and the, and the modern church teaches that God's not, not, not sovereign, that God really doesn't know what's going to happen in the future any more than we do. It's a heresy called open theism. That's, that's wrong. God is omniscient. He knows everything about everything. But he's also not just omniscient, because everybody stops there. He knows about the future. He sure, he sure does, but he's also omnipotent, which means he controls the future. And so he allows what he hates. He allows sin to seemingly dominate at times so that a greater good will come about that would not come about if God had not allowed that evil to that extent. Case in point is Jesus. The worst sin that anybody ever did, and we can say Adam eating the fruit because that caused the fall of all mankind, but the greatest sin that man, uh, that man ever did was, was, was kill Jesus. You kill the incarnate God. You kill Christ. You can't get worse than that. So... Um, God hated that. He loved Jesus more than he loves anybody else. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He never disappoints me. He never has failed me. I love him with an everlasting love. Okay. And yet he let wicked men take hold of him, beat him, and kill him. So he hated that. God despised that. And yet it says he pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? Why would God do that? Why would he allow what he hates? so that people are saved because Jesus paid the price of our sins 
and the glory of his grace will be displayed on wicked sinners and it will be praised throughout all of eternity. So God allows what he hates so that a greater good will come forth that would not have come forth had he not allowed what he hates. Now, only God can know this because God knows the future. And so he knows why this is going to all work out. We see we're here on the earth. It's kind of like, you know, you get a bird's eye view. You can sometimes see things differently. We don't have the bird's eye view. We're in the middle of this. And, and you got to remember, this didn't start with us. Stuff has been going on for centuries before we were born. We're, in, we're not at the beginning of anything. We're not at the beginning of the United States. We're not at the beginning of, of, of Christianity. We're not at the beginning of the world being created. We're, 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 I hope we're at the end, but maybe we're not. We might be just in the middle. I don't know. But, but a whole bunch of stuff came about, which is why we, were, why we are where we are. Now, you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Cute little rhyme. Okay, 1492. Why did he want to come over here? He wanted to find a, 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 a way to India so he could get spices because spices were as valuable as gold. And he wanted another trade route by going go west to find east because he believed the earth was round, not flat which is what everybody, the, the scientific community was in consensus that the earth was flat. I mean, any moron can tell that. Look out there on the gulf. You see, it, it drops off. It's plain as day, nose on your face, right? And, and he said, no, it's round. Why did this little nincompoop go against the conventional wisdom? What did he say? What did he say was his reason in his writings? No, y'all don't know. Y'all ain't read his writings. He said God told him. He said God told him. And he went to the, the king and said, God told me. And the king said, get out of here. You're an idiot. So he went to a rival nation. So God stirred up a rivalry between Spain and Portugal. They hated each other at that time. They were in competition with colonies in Africa. And those people supported his trip, financed his trip, just despite the other one. Right? So you had an Italian sailor that was financed, and I can't remember if he was financed by Spain or financed by Portugal, one or the other. To, 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 he, he's, not even, he's not Spanish. He's not Portuguese. He's Italian. And yet he went under the flag of another country because they had the, the gold. So, so he went on this, and he never did come here. He was on the islands down there. He never really found this. He saw those people there. He said, those are Indians because they, they're, they're, we're in India. Right? Okay, all right. Now, he said God told him that. He said God gave him a vision of that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. But he was willing to risk his life. But you have to understand something. See, what I just told you is real sweet and real nice and wonderful. They had this rival between these two nations, and that's the only reason why that king and queens financed his trip, because they were getting back at the other country. Okay, I didn't tell you about all the people that were murdered in that rivalry. All the injustice that was going on, like, for example, in Spain in 1492, 
while Columbus's ships were going out into the distance, the government of Spain was, all the Jews in Spain had to either leave or die. And they slaughtered them. I can tell you about that. And so we, we have to realize history is filled with blood. Christianity is filled with blood. It is unbelievably violent. Jesus died in the most excruciating, painful way so that a wretch like me could know Jesus and, and be saved. Okay, the point I'm trying to make to you is that God put it in men to, to, to love God. That, that's why we have self-determination or a will. Now, when we're lost, we lost that. We lost that, and we can only sin. But when we're born again, we do have self-determination of will. I came here this morning for one reason, because I wanted to, because I love God and I want to preach his word and I want to do it rightly. The reason I parked myself in a chair, I, I timed it this week, 76 hours I was sitting in a chair this week. I'm not bragging, I'm not, it's not my point. When I got up after sitting in a chair for hours and hours, my knees hurt me so bad it took me an hour to walk around for my knees to quit hurting. You're not make, God didn't make the human body to sit in a chair that long. And I'm trying to figure out a way to do it. But I was so engrossed in, the, in, in getting these sermons and these Bible studies that I just I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop because I'm going to lose my train of thought. And I, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do about that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm trying to figure out different ways. The point I'm trying to make is I didn't do that because I had to. Nobody was, nobody knew I was doing it but me. Rhonda was not there. The children were gone at school. I was by myself. God knew and me knew. Other than that, nobody knew. I, I, I don't have to say a word about it. I, I'm just telling you, why did I do that? Because to, to, I, I look at this as an endurance contest? No, I want to get it right. The sermon I'm going to preach this morning, and, I, and I, you can be merciful to me, it's not as good as I would like it to be. I can tell you that up front. But it's the third sermon. I edited it three times because I wasn't happy with it. I don't think it's still like it ought to be, as good as it should be. But all I'm trying to say is, is that is a will. I chose to do that. I voluntarily, no, God didn't force it. He didn't command me. I voluntarily did that. So because I'm born again, I now have what people say lost people have. I have a will that is able to sin and able not to, a nature that is able to sin and able not to sin. Lost people do not. Now, here's why, this, here's why this matters. If you don't believe that lost people, if you believe that lost people have the ability to choose freely, then God's not sovereign because whoever makes the final determination about anything is the one in charge. You want to buy a house and you're all excited about buying a house, but you're husband or your wife says no whoever puts a clamp on that is the one in charge so if man has self-determination lost people then God's not sovereign in salvation and that means that all God can do is offer salvation 
and then sit back and hope that somebody takes him up on his offer. And that's exactly what churches teach today. And it's not in the Bible. It's never been in the Bible. It never will be in the Bible. It is false teaching. It is wrong. And it makes man in the catbird seat. It puts man in the catbird seat. The Bible says God is sovereign not only in creation, but in salvation as well. And people are saved for one reason, because God already chose them before they were ever born. Say, so, well, they're seeking after God. That's what it looks like to us on a human level. Well, that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is the Holy Spirit is drawing that man. Um, you say, well, I got saved when I was 13, and then I went out in the world for 20 years, and when I was 34, I came back to the Lord, and I made Jesus the Lord of my life, and now I'm on fire for God. Okay, that's commonly talked about in church today, is it not? Okay, where, where, where's that in the Bible? Nowhere. It's a made-up doctrine. They're trying to explain how somebody can make a decision for Christ when they're 13, but it didn't take until they were 34. Because that's what happens. They, they think it's what happens. Well, what happened is they weren't saved at 13. They made an emotional response because their friends were doing it or they got scared or some emotion thing, human emotion, and that's why it didn't take. And they went out in the world because that's what people do when they're lost. And then it's something, they remembered the gospel that they had heard or they heard another somebody else preach the gospel. They heard a song. They were invited to go to a church. They were invited to a revival or something. And they came, heard that boom, bang, boom, and God moved. That's when they got saved. So you say, well, it took me a long time to come to the Lord. I was, I was resisting. God didn't call you until you came. And I'm going to get into that this morning. You, when he calls, you respond because his call is effectual. So before the call, you can, you can act like a nut all you want to and be in sin all you want to. But there's a time, there's a moment in God's economy when God says, come here. And when he speaks, it happens because he's sovereign. That's why you got saved. Now, people don't like that. But, but here's my question. I'm, I'm going to stop. Why don't people, it's in, that's what the Bible teaches. I didn't write that. I didn't make it up. Why don't people like it? And why don't people preach it? Well, I mean, go into it a little bit more than that. I agree with you, but I mean, what, what, so? I mean, so. Why is that important to me? Why? Very simple. Lost people are in a war with God over sovereignty. It's not a good thing that people act that way, even though sometimes we joke about it, sometimes we laugh about it. No. The reason that people act that way and they do not want the truth is because they don't like what God said. Because that, that it makes them not in charge, just like you said, yes. But why does that bother them? Because as a lost person, they think they're God. They don't just think they're right. They think they're God. And I'm going to do what I think I'm doing. And so that's what it means. When you do what is right in your own eyes, you become God. 
You become the lawgiver. You become the law. You become the Bible. And so when you make up stuff about God, what he will or will not do, it is because you now have reinvented religion. You're creating another religion that has nothing to do with Christianity. And if enough people agree with you in that religion, you'll get a church. And, and so I don't care where you go. You, and I used to, I tried to, I, I took people with me in my car to prove this. We, we, there used to be Dell Champs down there. It's Food Giant right now. I said, I want to go to Food Giant, uh, Dell Champs with you. We walk in. I said, that lady is a checkout lady. Walk up and ask her if she believes in human free will. Yeah, absolutely. So do you agree with this statement? God will never violate the free will of man. Absolutely. Everybody believes that. That is the religion of the lost. And it's not taught. It is the natural, logical conclusion that a person comes to in their lost condition. It makes perfect sense. It's easy to teach. It's easy to learn. There's only one problem with it. It's not in the Bible. And so the Bible shatters it. And it shatters it totally. And that's why they don't, they don't like these truths. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I pray, Lord God, that it was useful and helpful to your people. I pray that you've been glorified. Help us now to understand a little bit more about why Paul wrote what he wrote here in Romans 1. In Jesus Christ's most precious name, amen.